This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Now that we are in the midst of an international and national conversation about systemic racism, a very familiar voice of the Zoomer generation is stepping forward with his experience. Hal Johnson is well known for Body Break, the popular fitness segment he starred in and produced with his wife, Joanne McLeod, since the late 80s. Hal and Joanne are still engaged in promoting fitness, especially for Zoomers. They've appeared on Zoomer TV, on our sister station Vision TV, and are fronting a current campaign to avoid frailty as we age. They are well-liked, respected, and successful personalities. And that's why it's come as a shock and surprise to many to learn that the creation of Body Break came about as a way to overcome the racism in mainstream media at the time. Hal and Joanne joined Libby Snymer on Wednesday. And Hal began the conversation by telling the story of racism he encountered in 1988 when he was hired by TSN. I was offered the job um, by Jack Hutchinson, a lovely gentleman, at, at 11 o'clock in the morning. He uh, thought I made the grade and I could do it. And then uh, 2 o'clock, he called me and he said, unfortunately, uh, the higher-ups did not think that uh, having two black reporters at the same time simultaneously would be would be a good idea. And um, subsequently, he, he uh, I was fired at 2 o'clock. So I was a sports reporter for only three hours. I was obviously, you know, uh, uh, frustrated and, you know, a little dismayed, but it was interesting because uh, Jack, he was literally in tears uh, telling me this over the phone, and he kept saying, this isn't right, this isn't right. He was seemingly more upset than I was about it, and so when somebody's, you know, giving you that news and he knows it's not right, I just, I, I wasn't really angry. I don't, you know, I, I certainly you know, wasn't bitter. I remembered it. And I think it becomes scar tissue in your, in your mind after a while that, uh, yeah, you know, you're kind of being beaten down for no you know, fault of your own, but uh, you've got to get up and, you know, persevere. And that's, you know, kind of been, you know, Joanne and, and myself, that's been our way with Body Break We've, over the years. Joanne, when did you first hear this story? Oh, the the day it happened. And what was interesting for me is when I look back on that time, we had only been dating about a month at the time. And even in that short period of time, I had already realized that our relationship was different. And people close to me you know, being, uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, black man, white woman shouldn't, that, that's not right. And, and I was beginning to be aware of, of that. And then when Hal, um, mentioned what had happened, I, I, I know I was in kind of shock, um, that this was happening. Like you, you think even back in the eighties, you, there was still uh, a feeling that, Oh wow, like things had, but then things hadn't. But I was being introduced to this 
for the first time that hearing it was it was shocking. But I think from a health perspective, also this wasn't the first time something like this would happen. Um, how uh, when you would say to me about um, when you would potentially want to date a white woman when you were younger, there was always this kind of backlash and and it I think Hal has experienced uh, situations that lead up to a point where you go okay I can't fight it what can I do to solve it and I think that's where it's no it's no longer an anger it it's channeled in a in a more uh, proactive approach and but, we but... were fortunate enough that we were able to go there's something that we can do that can be in our control to make a difference. Hal, do you think that all of this is, there's a generational aspect to this, that your response and your approach is is perhaps different than some younger people of color? Uh, it, It might be. I don't know in a sense if it's generational because I was like this 32 years ago. You know, so... Um, I'm like, I've always had the approach that you don't change people's minds with the hammer. You change it when you change their heart, when you change their heart, that's, that controls their body. Um, you can force them to do things, but unless you teach them and, uh, and, and as I said, with body break, we've subtly been giving you the medicine to understand that we can all be together. That was my approach 32 years ago. Now there's people out there that, that want to shake things up. In, in a very aggressive, more aggressive way than 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 is my approach. I just do it the way I'm. Way it maybe maybe generational, but I've been doing this kind of all my life this way. Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod in conversation with Libby Snymer on Wednesday. Listen for more from Hal Johnson tomorrow after the noon news on the Zoomer Weekend Review here on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The devastating impact of COVID-19 on long-term care in Ontario continues to be a hot topic on Fight Back. There were six new outbreaks of COVID-19 in nursing homes over last weekend, while restrictions on visitors have now been eased for care homes that are not in outbreak. The CEO of Siena Senior Living has resigned after the province took over three Siena-owned nursing homes hard hit by COVID-19. This development again raises the issue of worse outcome for residents who live in for-profit long-term care. Overall, 16 of Ontario's 20 deadliest outbreaks have come in for-profit facilities, where residents are nearly twice as likely to die with COVID-19 as those in nonprofit homes. And while there is a lot of talk about how to improve long-term care, the Zoomers advocacy group CARP is taking action. CARP's chief policy officer, Marissa Lennox, has testified to a Queen's Park committee about a measure in an omnibus bill that would make it much more difficult to get class actions certified. That's where the discussion began with our Zoomer squad this past Monday. David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, senior editor at Zoomer Magazine, and CARP's Marissa Lennox. Our fear, of course, is that were these two amendments to move forward and to pass, uh, it would make 
the certification of class action suits much more difficult. So we testified to the Justice Committee in Ontario, and we've also launched a petition, and it's on our website. And we've already, over the course of, I think, two or three days, had over 5,000 signatures. And so that will be presented to the government um, this week. Peter, do you have uh, any sense of where these amendments came from? Somebody saw them in the U.S. and decided that it would be a good deal here? Well, you know, in, in the U.S., in in an article I read, and now I don't want to say it was the Times, but I think it was, uh, nursing homes themselves were writing the legislation uh, on behalf of the government. So lawyers for the nursing home were, were putting in the language of these um, lawsuit shield laws. I spoke to two lawyers, one who is involved in a lawsuit and one who is just an observer, and both of them said, even if the government tries, it won't stand up. So uh, there's that to hang on to. Given the blatant disregard for human condition detailed in the military report, you know, CARP, our members, seniors really across the province are thankful that we have a legal system that allows for individuals and families to seek justice and compensation for their loss and their suffering. Meanwhile, there was a trend that outbreaks were being contained, but we have six new outbreaks over the weekend, and this as other nursing homes are going to start easing restrictions. David? Well, it's true, and and I think that's where the balancing act is going to come in. This is probably one of the most complicated situations we've seen because we have, on the one hand, many sort of fixable, outrageous things that should never have been allowed to happen in the first place and would be outrageous even without coronavirus. Then we have a virus that, under the best of circumstances, uh, disproportionately affects uh, older people, particularly because they have so many underlying comorbidities. And in a hospital setting, in a totally isolated setting, they may still uh, die from this. And then you have that blend of some homes are modern, some are not, some are good, some are bad. And if you shut it all down and if you sort of wipe out that industry, uh, what have you got to uh, replace it with when you've got five, six or longer months waiting list now and, and, and a shortage of beds in the existing inadequate system? Marissa, what do you see about the easing of restrictions? There are criticisms on both ends. You know, some yeah. people saying it's too soon. Some people saying it is not enough. We yeah. know that family members are, they're huge in, in aiding in the care of residents. Right. And that's part of the reason that they were so neglected in that's this right. is that their families weren't in there. You know, when families were sheltering in place, um, because we were being told to by the province, we had care workers going in and out of these homes, and they were really uh, the ones that were spreading it. So I think it is a balancing act. I do have to say, though, there's no doubt in my mind that the easing of caregivers, family caregivers going into these homes to be able to see their loved ones was the right move. We know that people have been impacted enormously by the isolation that they felt during COVID-19. And we also know that family caregivers play such a critical role in a senior's care plan, and they lost that. And we kind of lost sight of that as well because we were entirely focused on this virus spreading throughout these homes, and we lost that sight of that aspect of this problem.
Marissa Lennox, CARP's Chief Policy Officer, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, along with Libby Zneimer, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Tuesday... Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced the Canada Emergency Response Benefit will be extended another eight weeks. He positioned it by saying the federal government will continue to be there for Canadians who've lost work and income because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But behind the scenes, it was a concession offered to the New Democrats in order to receive their support on Wednesday in a confidence vote. The Conservatives, meantime, have made it clear they will not be supporting the Liberals unless regular sittings of Parliament resume. Just after the Prime Minister's announcement, Libby was joined by our Fight Back strategy panel, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. No one believes that, that anyone's going to defeat the Liberal government at the stage of the game when when, quite frankly, the NDP don't have the resources to be able to fight an election. Uh, the Prime Minister is at 60-70% approval rating, uh, and you've got a, a Conservative Party in the middle of the leadership campaign, um, not least of which you know, the bloc would, would not support that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's political posturing, but again, it gives uh, Jagmeet some airtime. But there was no question that the Liberals were going to extend it anyways. I think that it was the right, prudent thing to do, given the fact that there's still a lot of anxiety amongst people who still can't find work. Uh, and the fact that they were able to do it for the two more two extra months, I think, is going to be helpful and should get us through and should get a lot of folks through um, a, an anxious time, which is between now and, and the middle of summer, when, when it's generally hard to find jobs anyways. Is your party justified, John, in saying that they're not going to support the Liberals unless they have a proper parliamentary protocol? Well, you know, and, and Andrew Scheer, I think, has been consistent on this from the from the get-go. It doesn't matter what phase we were in uh, of, of, of the pandemic. I think early on, um, I think that, you know, people in, in the, the opposition parties, including Andrew Scheer, allowed the prime minister to do his things and, and allowed for them to make some of those tough decisions uh, when they needed to, needed to be because they didn't want to delay it. But I think as things are coming down now, I think there's more and more um, folks out there and, and, and political leaders saying, you know what, now it is the time to be able to go back and, and do at least some form of parliament uh, in, in, in some way, shape, or form. So I do think that at least Andrew Scheer has been consistent with that, without, uh, with that demand from the very beginning. Charles, is that a fair criticism that uh, the Liberals have been subverting parliamentary tradition, certainly, and just ramming too many things through? And should they be getting back to Parliament now rather than governing by fiat, basically? Oh, no, that's nuts. I mean, like the, the temporary House of Commons is a ridiculously small space. The notion of cramming 338 MPs in there in the midst of a pandemic is, is just blinding stupidity. Well, I no, think no, no. Most we were rational we, people recognize. No that, one you know, is talking about putting them in all, putting them well, all in. That's what the conservatives in. are talking about. Libby, they're demanding a full return to the House. And in the case of a vote, you would have, in the case of a confidence vote, you would have all 338 people there. But they aren't even now, having many virtual tomorrow. sittings. They're having committee sittings. That's correct. 
They're not yeah, having it seems to be working quite well and providing right. some degree of accountability. And but the Conservatives want a full return to the House. They recognize the political advantage that's to be had by having the whole kit and caboodle back, conveniently ignoring that we are in the midst of a pandemic. Karen? Well, I, I'm going to disagree with Charles just a little bit uh, in that every single employer, and, and Variety Village included, has, has had to figure out how to be creative in order to reopen. And so, you know, we're doing a number of things, taking steps so that we can offer camps in July. I think there is a point where Parliament has to show its creativity um, beyond virtual meetings on how it's going to reopen, because that sends a signal to the rest of the country around how the rest of the country should be considering reopening. You know, and it sends a message, too, to um, people that, that, you know, may be uh, inclined to stay on the CERB as opposed to take a job, that it is safe to return to work, albeit under certain conditions. And so being able to lead by example and setting those conditions and being able to return to work safely, which is what the prime minister says he wants for the people of Canada, I, I think it's in his interest to be able to demonstrate what that looks like. And to your point, Libby, parliaments around and governments around the world have figured out ways to meet in person. And as I said, you know, even my own experience, I have Zoom meetings with my team. It's not the same as being able to connect with them and figure out these problems and figure out solutions for how we're going to function. So I think the time is right for parliament. And if they can't meet at the building because of it's not enough space, then it's, you can find another space. But I think it does send an important message around uh, sitting, a sitting parliament, making decisions, particularly of the magnitude that they're making, that are extraordinary by all, by everyone's agreement. Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. And John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. As of Thursday, family and friends of residents of long-term care, retirement, and group homes are now allowed to visit, as long as there is no COVID-19 outbreak at the facilities. At nursing homes, one individual may visit a resident once a week outside. The rules for visits in retirement homes are a bit less restrictive. While some are applauding the visits, prominent geriatrician Dr. Nathan Stahl says they are misguided, overly restrictive, prone to abuse, not evidence-based, inequitable, and they reek of ageism. Dr. Stahl of Geriatrics and Internal Medicine at Sinai Health joined Libby on Tuesday. We are pleased that, you know, there is some progress on this issue. I mean, it's been over 90 days since uh, Ontarians, uh, older adults who live in retirement and nursing homes have been in lockdown. But unfortunately, for many people, this was not the reopening that we had anticipated. I mean, we watched sort of marinas and stables and shooting ranges be reopened a couple of weeks ago. And we're left with a document that's uh, very restrictive in terms of the, the visitations that uh, can occur. So the other thing is that it actually requires that visitors attest that they've had a negative swab for COVID-19 in the two weeks prior to coming for a visit. And in the face of an outdoor visit at a distance wearing a mask, we're actually holding visitors to a higher testing standard than we're actually holding the healthcare workers to who are going into the homes and providing direct care. So that onerous and restrictive part is, a, is something that myself and many of my colleagues are not happy with. The other thing is that 
it really fails the guideline to distinguish between those who are family caregivers who want to get in there to provide direct care to their loved ones as they were doing before the pandemic and those who want to visit for social reasons. And I'm not disputing that social visits are important, but there are also skilled caregivers who would be able to step in, fill some of the staffing shortages that are experts in providing care to people who have been locked down in these homes, and the guidelines still fail to address that. There's a number of conditions that the home must meet, that they have the policies in place, that they have the personal protective equipment, that they have the staff to support this. At the end of the day, the Premier has made it very clear that it's going to be up to the homes to implement this. And we fear that many of these homes are going to choose the easy route out, which would reduce sort of the administrative burden of organizing this, reduce the cost to perhaps extra staff and say they simply don't have the the protocols and policies in place to support visitors and, and keep the homes locked up. And and that's really our concern here is the power is really in the hands of the home. Uh, there's not a lot of recourse for uh, caregivers to actually, you know, take this up uh, with homes. And, and at the end of the day, these are just, you know, these are guidelines, which the home has made very clear to me. Some home have made clear to me that uh, they reserve the right to create and implement more conservative policies than what are laid out here. So that's why we're worried about being prone to abuse. When family uh, and friends and loved ones come in, they see what's going on there. And and in normal times, that's how a lot of things get fixed. So I guess uh, there are probably still homes that don't want people to see what's going on, right? Yeah, there might be homes that are, you know, want to clean clean up what's what's happening there, shore things up before they let family caregivers in or uh, visitors. I think probably a lot of it is justifiable fear about, um, you know, how quickly COVID nineteen can ravage a home and and result in significant morbidity and mortality. But I, you know, and I, and so there's no doubt that this is going to be one of the highest stakes places to reopen are going to be nursing and retirement homes. But I think if you're, you know, a reasonable approach was starting outdoors. And I think when you're starting outdoors, the conditions that are being imposed just for outdoor visits are really extreme. I mean, once I do understand the fear about going in the home and, and, and what that can introduce, but outdoors with at a distance with a mask, the risk of transmission is pretty negligible. And the other thing that, um, you know, is quite remarkable here is that particularly for nursing homes, I mean, in Quebec weeks ago, they opened up uh, nursing homes, not for visitors, but for residents to actually go out on walks. And, you know, the residents are still locked in. They can't actually leave the the property of the home to go out for a walk uh, to maintain their physical function. Um, and, And that's really problematic as well for physical and mental health of the residents. We, as, as a province and as a society, we are opening up. We are accepting some incremental risk here. And I think older adults, most of them would tell you uh, they don't want to die of loneliness and social isolation. And we may need to accept some more risk than we're currently, the guidelines are currently willing to accept to provide some humanity for the residents in these homes who have been in lockdown for over 90 days and for the loved ones who want to see them. Dr. Nathan Stahl of Geriatrics and Internal Medicine at Sinai Health. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Lily in London phoned with a request for all of us. I just want to encourage people, please wear a mask. My cousin died last month of COVID. So sorry to hear that. Well, she was in a home and the caregiver had it and passed it along to all the residents. And she suffered two and a half weeks and died on her birthday. Oh, no. 
and the family couldn't go in. Please wear masks. 90% of the people in London are not wearing them, and I hear the same thing in Toronto. COVID is still here. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Natalie in Scarborough, who phoned our Zoomer squad to say she's scheduled a visit to see her mother, who's in a nursing home, in good health, and about to turn 100. Thank God. Thank goodness. She must miss you. Oh, she does. But, you know, I call her every day. We talk all the time. Has the nursing home been helpful in, oh, yes. in arranging this? Oh, yes. Yeah. They're really, really excellent. And um, they really will do anything for their the people in the home. We're happy for you that you're able to see Thank your you. mom. Thank you very much. And please call back after you see her and let us know how it all went. I will. Thank you. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.